everybody. Welcome back to the Your Project Shepherd Construction Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis Lawson. And if you're a regular listener of this show, I know that you've heard me say this before, but I'm going to keep saying it because it's so important. Here at Shepherd, we teach that every successful project has four key components, which are represented by this simple child's drawing of a house that you'll see on your screen if you're watching the video. And if you're not, just try to imagine that. Imagine like what a four-year-old would draw for a house, just four lines. Uh, the floor, the bottom line, the foundation is proper planning. The left wall is your team. The right wall is communication. And the roof, protecting it all, is proper execution. Have all four of those components and your project will succeed. Take one away and it's all going to fall down. Uh, so this is our second season of the Your Project Shepherd podcast. And we're making each season about 16 episodes long. Uh, which is about two months based on our current release schedule, which is twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays. This new season, we're going to be talking about what does it cost? And I'll be discussing all those things that people ask me, ask uh, architects and builders when they first call to talk about a project. And with me today to talk about uh, what does it cost for custom homes is my friend Franco Alberon of Alberon Architecture and Construction. Uh, Franco is a licensed architect here in Houston, and he's also a neighbor of mine. Franco, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Um, why don't you give us all a quick rundown of what you guys do and tell us about yourself and how, how you work. Sure. So I'm a licensed architect. My name is Franco Albron. Uh, we've been in business uh, about 19 years. We spent the first half of that uh, strictly doing architectural design work for our clients' custom homes. Uh, we did a little bit of commercial work in the beginning. We've kind of phased that out, and we strictly uh, focus on custom homes, remodelings, additions, anything that's really unique and a kind of a one-off project. About eight years ago, nine years ago, we added the component of building as well, and our process is what we call architect-led design build. So the architect, myself, who designs your project, is actually building your project as well. And that way, we found that it was uh, much more beneficial, and there's a lot of value in that the architect... It, who designed it, understands the details, the drawings, the components, can interact with the subcontractors, and can make uh, changes and decisions with you in the field quickly and more efficiently. Yeah. So it's like our, our, our concept of building your team early, except it's just fewer team members. You're kind of getting your architect and your builder all in one. Absolutely. But we also like to partner with other builders and other contractors because uh, we do about 12 projects a year, and we end up building about three of those ourselves. So the rest of the work is referred out. And a lot of times builders bring in their clients and we're, it's very clear that we're also builders, but we're not going to be building their job. But we like to work with those builders because we come from it from a buildability point of view and that we will make sure that what we design can get built within a budget and within a time frame that makes sense for everybody. We don't like to be the architect that has a lot of great ideas, but yet somehow is going to be over budget or very difficult to build. And that can be a big problem. So you guys having the firsthand knowledge of how things actually go together in the field and not just the, the theoretical knowledge uh, is, is, a big, uh, is a big plus, right? Absolutely. Uh, I tell the team members all the time, that, look, whatever we design, we're going to be responsible, you know, you know, probably or someone else. And that's a huge responsibility. And we want to make sure that when our clients are uh, retaining us, that we're able to give them that, uh, that service and that value to them and their builder because as a team member, we want the builder to succeed because if he succeeds or she, then the project will succeed and the happy client, you know, it's just, it's great for the team all the way around. We're very collaborative effort on our work. I guess if you're like me, you probably get a lot of calls from people. And one of the first questions they ask is, uh, how much do you charge per square foot? Right. 
Uh, so how do you answer that? You know, first off, that's a great question. I think charging, I think it's a great opener, a great conversation piece to start the conversation. I don't let that really guide too much of the conversation. Um, I typically, what I tell my clients is like, look, uh, we price projects. And then when we're done with the budget, then we divide it by the square footage of the house. And then that gives us a number. And that's kind of how we figured out a price per square foot. But really, we look at projects and say, okay, what are you trying to build? And what are what is part of that budget? For example, if you're going to build a pool, is that part of that budget? Or is it pool independent? Because, you know, the pool, if you're doing price per square foot, and all of a sudden your cost really goes up. Yeah. But if you're just building a home, and it also depends on the components that go into a house, uh, we tell them there's kind of a minimum standard that we kind of would anticipate as a starting point for a conversation. Not so much to... Um, you know, drive the cost up, but rather say, look, based on our historical projects in the past, all of our data and knowledge, this is what would be an entry point. And then you can definitely go up from there, depending on your preference and what you want to put into this house. But trying to compare a cost per square foot between two builders is almost impossible because you don't know what one's including. Like you said, a pool. Exactly. Landscaping. uh, Some builders leave out the appliance package. I mean, there's a lot of different things that you might include that other builders don't include. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I went back, I was listening to some of the podcasts of some of your guests you had earlier, uh, Jeremy McFarlane from Brick Moon Design, and he kind of equated it to kind of like buying groceries. You know, he says, depends on what you put in the cart. Yeah. So the way I look at it is a price per square foot is a unit of measure that we use to build, but it's not really what should be guiding the project. Now we purchase things on a price per square foot, tile, drywall, you know, uh, quartz countertops, things, those items are priced or bought in that unit, but it's very hard to equate it because I tell a client, your kitchen is your most expensive component of the house. You got cabinets, you got plumbing, electrical, mechanical, you got paint. Every trade. Everything is in there in that, say, 15 by 18 or 15 by 20 space. But yet you go to a bedroom, you got walls, drywall, maybe wood floors, probably going to be some carpet depending. So it's like that is far less people involved there than it is over here. So a kitchen might cost eight hundred thousand bucks a foot, but to build up that room over there might be very inexpensive. Yeah, and, and like an outdoor kitchen, oh, yeah. uh, which which most people don't even include the outdoor kitchen in their square footage. Exactly. That's that outdoor kitchen could be twenty, fifty, eighty thousand dollars. Yes, and it's not even part of the square footage, so to speak. Yeah. So one of the things I've noticed is that when I started my career early on, so I started practicing about uh, twenty five years ago. And patios were patios. They weren't very elaborate. I mean, maybe a screened-in porch. Um, Concrete slab and a roof, maybe. Yeah, at the best, you'd have some sort of a stone tile. But now, our patios are outdoor living. Now, they're really outdoor living spaces. Mm-hmm. They're unair conditioned. Some might be air conditioned. Uh, there's going to maybe screened-in. There's going to be a countertop, maybe a sink, a bar, a TV. You're going to have a wood ceiling. Are you going to paint it? You're going to stain it. So then, all of a sudden, this now becomes really the cost of a living space versus an outdoor space that isn't really equated into that price per square foot because it's not considered air conditioned space by HCAT standards, so to speak. Yeah. You know, le- less so, but also even your front porch. You got a big front porch with tile, gas lanterns, uh, stained wood ceiling, all that stuff. Again, that, that, non-square footage space costs costs more to build than a bedroom does. Exactly. And a lot of oftentimes, that's a great example because let's just say the house is raised, it's in the floodplain or you're in the heights, then what is holding that up? Is it going to be just wood 
or is it going to be made out of brick or concrete or CMU block to sustain the weight of whatever look you're going for? So then the cost to build that is very expensive and it might only be an eight by 10 or 10 by 10. Yeah. And so there's a lot of different things to kind of keep in mind. And when we work with our clients, we like to educate them throughout the process about what things cost and really kind of what things mean in terms of uh, buildability and also what's available. Uh, You might have a really great idea, but if you can't get something for six months or eight months or even a year, then you kind of have to start, you know, thinking of other ways to kind of achieve that same look. Starting with what can you spend or what do you want to spend? What can you afford to build is really the better way. It's like the price per square foot is a, is a good way to start the conversation. Maybe just to see if you're in the same ballpark as the builders that you're talking to. Right. But beyond that, I mean, that, that's really to me, all it is is a starting point. Absolutely. Beyond that, it has to be, hey, this is our budget. What can we achieve for this budget? Right. Right. And oftentimes, as, as I noticed in, in our practice, it's not so much what they can afford as much as what they want to afford. Right. I tell my clients, you know, you may not want to purchase a $80,000 appliance package in your house. You might decide, I don't need that. I can do with far less than that. And that's fine because an appliance package is a great example. It can double and that doesn't really affect the house in any way structurally. It's just, uh, it's, a, it's a package. It's a feature mm-hmm. that just adds a lot of cost to a project that maybe doesn't need it. I mean, if you're a cook, um, and you really cook a lot. That might be important to you. Yeah. But if you're somebody who says, you know, we mainly grill on the weekend, do all these things, then maybe you do that. You, you take that money, invest it somewhere else throughout the house. Yeah. Recently, we've had a lot of issues and it's settled down some, right? But we've, we've had a lot of issues with market volatility right. in uh, building materials, especially lumber. I mean, it went from you know, 300 something bucks a board foot to 1600 bucks a board foot. And then it's back down. I'm not sure where it is today, but it's, it's yeah. back down pretty close to where it was before all the, uh, the pre COVID. Right. Sure. So market volatility can even swing that price per foot, a very large direction or amount in each direction. Right. Absolutely. You know, a great example is, uh, also like appliances have chips in them, you know, there's a chip shortage. So then that yep. caused a delay and caused a, you know, additional pricing. And so really, I think that the best way to look at it is that you can price it. You can put a number assigned to that, to that uh, category, that line item. But then we actually go purchase that and you actually now need that material. There might be additional cost involved. Lumber is a great example. Also quartz. It might be that the product you pick out is, let's just say it's not trendy. And all of a sudden, over the course of six months you're building, that material becomes very trendy. And for some reason, you know, supply and demand. There's more demand for it, so it's going. The cost is going to go up. So then, that might cost more than what you had initially budgeted for, or you maybe look at something else. Mm-hmm. But I think part in budgeting is to give yourself some contingencies within that budget. And by that I mean, let's say you get a uh, so like when we build a project, we look at the budget and we say, okay, at all the projects we work on, these tend to be the categories that tend to maybe get a little more inflated because people add to them or they kind of splurge in certain areas. And I'll use one as an example, is going to be electrical. Doesn't sound like a big deal, but oftentimes they might say, you know what, we didn't consider this, but we really want to add lights to the staircase. Okay, so now we're, now we're adding lighting in there, so we might need another, does that give me a dedicated circuit? What kind of lights are going to be? Now we have to cut that light within the trim, so then there's some labor costs there. So what we often do is we add some additional contingency within that line item and say, okay, this is the, the bid from the electrician, but based on our experience, you might add more lighting or certain components to your project. 
and we're going to put this money here. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to take the money unless you use it. Right. And if you don't use it, you get to use it somewhere else in the project or it's just a credit back to you. What are some other areas besides electrical that you, that you find are common areas where you need to build in that extra contingency or things that people often add? Uh, framing. Framing is a good one because uh, we we did a project la- a few years ago in West U. We had some third floor attic space that was left over. We knew we were going to use some of it, just not, we didn't know to what extent. And they ended up using a good part of that attic space. And then when they built it out, we had to actually do some re-engineering because of some of the components that we ended up moving around to accommodate the aesthetic they wanted. And so then that, you know, so we learned, okay, you know that. And then the other thing might be, it's funny, but it's shampoo niches. So in our framing package, we actually allow a, a number for framing those shampoo niches because no one knows what that sh- where it's going to go or how it's going to look until we pick out a tile because we like to make sure the tile can course out with everything. And so then we make these niches and then we anticipate ahead of time, this is where it's going to go. We might be working with an interior designer. And then once we know the pattern, we lay it out in our, in our CAD software. And then we can tell you exactly where everything's going to go. But trying to translate that information on a framing stage to pass an inspection three months before you install tile, that's a, that there's a lot of forward thinking. Yeah. And there's also certain things that people, um, you know, no matter how well you draw it out on paper and, and try to envision it, it's not the same until you're standing in the room looking at it. Like on paper, they might, they may say, oh yeah, that 14 by uh, 20 shampoo niche in, in my shower is fine. But in person, they go look at it and they're like, no, I need <laughs> all the way down the wall, five feet long, yeah. 20 inches tall. And so you reframing it. And guess what? The framer is going to charge you for making another trip to do that. It's right. just, you know, it, 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 it's extra cost. Or you've already installed, maybe at this point, you've already gotten as far as Hardy or whatever your uh, moisture barrier is going to be there. So right. now you have to take that out, reframe it, redo it. Maybe you might have to move some plumbing lines. So there's a lot of things to consider um, as you're building. And these are the things that we tell our homeowners. So we have a, a whole list that we would ask our clients. And say, these are the questions we're going to ask you throughout certain parts of the process and the phase so we can then build it for you efficiently as possible. I don't give them everything up front because I gave them every single thing they had gone to the site on. They probably wouldn't build a house. They'd just walk away. I think people see um, new construction homes on the market. And I'm talking about like infill new construction. So like um, a new construction in in an existing neighborhood. Um, They see a spec house on the market and they're like, oh, I can afford a new house. And then they talk to us about building a custom home and they're right. like, well, how can it be so much more for a custom home? This spec, this spec house is on the market over here for, for, for this price, right? Right. So, so what are those differences between a, uh, a spec house and a, and a production, uh, sorry, not production, a spec house and a custom home? You know, what, what's, what's the difference there? Why is it so much more to build a custom home? Uh, it boils down to quality. And I'm not going to say quality is going to be you know, really bad or terrible on a spec house. So it's kind of a basic quality one would expect. But I'll, let's take lumber, for example. So if you're framing a custom home, typically custom builders, as you and I, are going to want to use framing material like dug, dug fur. So something that's going to be much more, it's going to be better. Uh, it can weather better. It's going to get wet. And so something that dries out, maybe one's not going to warp or, you know, shrink and swell a lot. Uh, something that's more dimensionally stable. Mm-hmm. So that would say that's dug fur. And then you might even do some other, let's just say they've got a 12 foot tall wall. Now, you and I had this discussion on one of your projects where you were investigating, I think, some LVL studs. Yeah. So it, you really have that nice dimension, stable lumber. Yeah. 
a straight wall on a tall on a yeah. tall ceiling. Because yeah. when you start taping and floating that on drywall, you're going to see the, the the waves and the oil canning. So, in in a spec house, they might do all that at a southern yellow pine, which is fine. It's perfectly acceptable. Engineers will accept it. But you know, if it gets wet, it tends to warp, tends to shrink, tends to swell, and the framers don't like it because it tends to kind of it's kind of brittle, so it'll kind of snap a little bit easier. And it's fine, but over time, you might, you know, if it gets wet a few times and dry and be, and within that process, when you start to hang drywalls and you're going to have a little bit of, you know, wavy walls and depends on how, if you're going to texture it, have a little bit of texture, it's fine. But if you want that nice smooth wall, you almost have to go to a, a, a better wood framing product. And that's one example that drives costs. Yeah. Or, or some spec builders might even use like a number three grade lumber. Yeah, uh, which is uh, which is going to give some really wonky walls. <laughs> yeah, and we use that for just like <laughs> bracing, you know. Um, the other thing that I think drives costs within a spec house would be let's just take um, kitchen cabinet hardware or cabinet hardware undermount glides. If you do the nice undermount KV glides or anything like that, Blum, those are going to be very expensive. I'll say probably your 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 gold standard. Yeah, twenty twenty five dollars a pair. Yeah, and then if you have what let's say you have a hundred of those. And just do the math, it adds up really quick. Yeah. Versus the regular slides or glides that are very basic, maybe they're a buck, two bucks a pair. Right. And so then there's a huge savings that you don't even see. And it's also how you build the cabinet. Is it a frameless cabinet? Is it going to be kind of what they call lip mold cabinets so that built in the fuel out of trim? Um, so there's many ways that, and then as we educate our clients, they understand that we say, look, these things are not wrong. There's nothing wrong with these at all. But this is a, an option if you want to go that route. But if you want this look, based on the photograph you're showing me in that image on Pinterest or House, this is this op, you know this is kind of that level of uh, mm-hmm. detail. And on the building performance side of things, the spec house is probably not going to be built with uh, you know like a zip system sheathing and spray foam insulation, and they're not going right. to go through kind of the same um, energy rating and testing that we might do on a custom home. It's, it's, Hey, we're going to use the cheapest materials to get this thing done as fast and cheap as possible. Cause that's the name of the game in investment real estate is yeah. get it done fast and cheap and maximize profits. Cause usually there's an investor who wants to make a return Absolutely. And, and that builder wants to make money too. So yeah. And it, it's, they have to take into account length of the time on the market, how long it's going to be on Do They probably have an interest payment. And then the other thing aside from materials might be the quality of the subcontractors that is going to really drive that that cost. So I go back to framing again, because we've used that example. The, the framer who's going to build a spec house, the way he's going to frame it and build it is going to be different than the framer who does a custom home. But the cost, the labor costs are going to be very different. But it depends again on what, you know, there's a whole level of service that goes with it. Because the framer for a spec house, he's just going to show up, frame and move on. Versus a custom guy, he's going to ask you questions. He's going to say, hey, I, I noticed a few little things here. Can we work these out ahead of time so I don't have to rebuild this component twice or three times? And so that's the kind of, it, so it's, it's a whole mindset about building a custom home, not just your architect or your builder, but your whole team all the way down your subcontractors. It's how they approach building to be efficient as well. Just one last comparison there. Talk about what the difference is between even that and a production home. So, think, so go, you go from a spec house infill to a production setting, what are those differences even like in price? Yeah. So, or, 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 or what do you get for that price difference? Well, I'll put it this way. My lumber supplier, he only does a custom side, but he's got some production side as well. And he jokingly said, he's like, you know, the custom guys, when you guys get your lumber delivery, 
He's like, you guys are checking everything and make sure everything is, you know, perfect what you were looking for. And you'll you'll send some things back because maybe they don't meet your expectation or your framers. He's like, production, they're happy they got lumber. <laughs> so I think that kind of, it sets the tone. And a lot of times those project managers might be managing 30 or 50, home, 50 homes at one time. Yeah. So what level of detail can they pay attention to? There's a lot of autonomy with the subcontractors there versus a custom home. There's not a lot of autonomy. There, there is some to the subcontractor because you need them to do their job and you don't want to get in their way. But there's also a lot of back and forth and communication of what are you seeing? How do you feel? How's this looking? Do you have any concerns? So it's, it's a whole different mindset. And those guys are also buying in bulk. I mean, they're buying Absolutely. the same tile probably by the multiple container load. Yeah. Uh, the roofing material, everything. They're buying that stuff in this this, this huge equ- uh, economy of scale. Um, and they're building that same floor plan over and over. You know, they, they may have five floor plans. Yeah. Uh, and they're building the same floor plans. The, the subcontractors give them a massive price break because they're, you know, they can build those in their sleep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had a friend that used to work at, uh, I don't think he was an architect. He was a, a designer. He worked in his office in putting together these plans. And they knew exactly how many sheets of plywood they would use per project. And if they ended up using one or two more sheets per job, they would ask questions like, why are you using more? And it doesn't, it doesn't seem like a lot, but let's just say plywood was, I don't know, 10 bucks then, nine bucks. And then you have that over 300 homes a year, that eats into the production builder's profit. Especially when those prices are up to $60 a sheet for the same plywood, right? Yeah, but, these, but they're like you said, economy of scale, they can buy, they're, they can pre-purchase, they say, hey, I know I've already committed to 300 houses this year, I can buy all that lumber now and I can store it in a warehouse, I can do what I need to do with it, protect it and then use it when I need it. I mean, I think that the differences are, I mean, they, they are the economy of scale, but I think like you said at the beginning of, of this, the, the quality and what they're putting into it, um, is is the biggest difference or or one of the biggest differences if you have a production home builder or even kind of like a a larger spec home builder who's trying to slot also slide into the custom market kind right. of the, the build on your lot custom market yeah i see a um, lot of those in our, especially in our neighborhood <laughs> they're bringing that same production quality level to a custom home Right, and I think that also skews people's view on what they should be able to get because they're like, "Oh, well, I talked to—I can't say any names on here—but I talked to such and such builder. They they had this build on your lot program, and they right. told me that they can build this house in my in in, in this neighborhood for 150 bucks a foot. Yeah, and I would say sometimes they can, and sometimes they can't. Um, in fact, I I I, uh, I took some pictures and video today on a job site. I actually posted a couple on, on LinkedIn the I other day. I think one. you saw, um, and it's a about a $2 million house in uh, Bel Air, Texas, which is a few blocks away from here. And this is a national or regional, at least, production builder who's kind of gotten into this build, this build on your lot uh, market. And the whole house is sheathed with uh, T-ply, uh, thermoply, basically a, wa- yeah. a waxy cardboard. I've seen that. Sheathing. Um, it's got the cheapest possible vinyl, vinyl windows that you can buy. Yeah. And I was over there today, <laughs> snooping around, taking some photos, because I can't help it. And um, just the quality work that goes into that is absolutely horrendous. I was in there watching the yeah. the trim carpenters run door casing, and I'll, I'll post some videos of this soon. But none of the miters come together on the corners, and if they yeah. do, they're 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 like askew. And uh, not with a painter can sand that out, right? 
Yeah, that's what I said. That, that that that's what we call like good enough for the painter. You know, right. Yeah, the painter will fix it. Use some caulking. Yeah, exactly. Uh, putty's your buddy. Uh, no, and so I think really what it comes down to is that mindset in terms of how you build things in custom. It's what it what the term implies. I tell our clients building custom is like um, working with an architect and a custom builder. It's like having a suit or a dress made to your liking. You pick up the fabric. It's put on you. The measurements are taken. The inseam, everything is cut to fit you and to make you look the best as possible within that that realm. And that's exactly what building a custom home is and working with an architect or builder that's going to care about those details because it's also their reputation. You know, they're known for producing quality work, independent of style. And so if it's something that, that they're, they also want to be proud of the work, but it's also a team effort that and how you build, it's really more of a mindset and how you get there than it is. And quality is very important. But I can have the best quality subcontractor, but if the mindset isn't there, we're not going to be able to get to that part. I also like to say you're building a prototype. And so this is the first time this house has ever been designed. It's the first time this house has ever been built. So we are figuring things out on the fly. Yeah. If, if I build this exact same house again uh, next month, I can do it cheaper. Right. Pro- probably because now we've worked out all the bugs. Yeah. Uh, we don't have to allow as much contingency because we know what, what it's going to be. Yeah. Right. But no, we're going to build this thing one time. It's a one-off prototype. If you exactly. go to any company that does design on any kind of product, the prototype's always going to cost more. Exactly. You know, and I'm glad you said that because so I think when the homeowner's selecting a builder uh, in this regard is, yeah, it's a one-off prototype. But what you should be interviewing that builder on, aside from quality, is their process. How does their process allow for that one-off prototype to give you the best result in the end? Mm. And I think that's one of the things that we overlook. And that price per square foot, when people want to go to a, uh, when they think about cost, it's kind of a run to the bottom. And you're going to get a builder, in my opinion, whose process can't deliver that product in the end. And it's not his fault because he maybe doesn't have the team, doesn't have the experience, and he just doesn't know or she doesn't know how to achieve this. But if you go to a quality builder who's got a very good process, they're going to be able to uh, produce that for you and your expectation is going to be met 100%. So shifting gears a little, um, in addition to the actual cost of building the home that we've been talking about, what are some out-of-pocket expenses that people should expect to incur even before they ever break ground? Because a lot of times you'll have uh, you know several months, maybe two to six months or, or more before construction starts, which means probably before their bank loan kicks in, right? where they're paying out of pocket for, you know, architecture and what else? Uh, so architectural fees would be one, engineering fees. And engineering can can vary. And that, by that, I mean, you, uh, you'll need at least a structural engineer to design the foundation and the framing plans. You may need civil if, uh, if you're going to have any sort of a drainage on your property or you live in the floodplain and you're doing something a little unique. And then little unique doesn't mean anything crazy. City Houston is really kind of cutting, you know, they're being a little more restrictive about building in the floodplain. So there might be some of that to consider. The other thing to consider might be, are you going to hire a building performance consultant, someone who's going to make sure you achieve the energy efficiency that you want within your house? Other things would be MEP engineer. You don't need it in residential, but maybe we had a client who had really bad allergies, her and her son. And so they hired a mechanical engineer to design their system. It was all sheet metal construction for the ductwork. Very expensive, but it's what they needed because otherwise they wouldn't be able to live in the house. So that's something to consider because that's not something that's standard on a, on a typical project. 
uh, other thing, the interior designer. Uh, is that something that's going to be, and at what point do you bring in the interior designer? We prefer it to be sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. We're not having to undo a lot of what we've already done. Uh, so there's a collaborative effort there. And are you going to hire a landscape architect? Maybe a pool designer, lighting designer, lighting yeah. designer. Yeah, all there's a lot of people who can get involved in the process. But I think if you hire a very, uh, a very uh, a good architect, they can take some of those components and they can design some of these components and maybe they can execute them. And a lot of times you can get some very quality subcontractors. Like my landscaper is a great example. He don't necessarily need a landscape uh, architect, but you know we can design some outdoor living spaces, and then he's able to kind of back into it and tell you based on his experience and what he's done. And how he builds things, he'd say, okay, we can do this and that and the other. And then I do have a friend who's a landscape architect, and sometimes I'll run things by him. He's like, yeah, he hit the nail on the head. He's, he's you know, that's exactly how I would do it. So there's some of that, you know, you can bring in as many consultants as you want. We've worked on projects where we were doing gyms, and they bring in a gym consultant, someone who yeah. just strictly do that. Maybe someone's going to lay out your kitchen, a kitchen designer, bathroom. So there's a lot to consider, or you don't have to make it that complicated and just kind of pick your team, architect, builder, interior designer. And if you have three very good people who can collaborate, you'll be able to, I think, get everything, kind of find a solution to everything that comes up. Yeah. Then there's those small costs that kind of add up like a, like a, a soil test, a geotechnical yeah. uh, surveys. You may have, to have multiple surveys done, different types of surveys. Yeah. I mean, a good one is I tell my clients now is that if your survey is older than five years, Get a new one and get a topographic survey. So yep. it gives you the elevation points on your lot and go ahead and do an elevation certificate. Even though you don't need it, uh, we're seeing that the city of Houston is kind of requiring that more. So while they're doing the survey, it's very inexpensive to provide that with Sure. It. So otherwise, for the survey to come back just to do that is, is much more expensive. Yeah. So at a bare minimum, you're looking at, you know, at your architectural engineering. Right. You know surveying and soil testing those those four components are kind of like your bare minimum sure and then it's adding on from there so i mean i usually tell people to expect you know between their architectural fees engineering fees and and the, kind of those core components you should probably expect obviously depending on the architect right because sure. architectural fees can can range widely too but i tell people hey plan on 30 to 70 or maybe even 80,000 for exactly. all of those components out of pocket Right. At a minimum. And it may be, if you add in those other consultants we talked about, that may be a hundred grand yeah. that you have out of pocket on a custom home. Yeah, depending on the size of the custom home and also depending on the level of service your architect's going to provide. Sure. And by that I mean, is it just design plans yeah. um, and some city plans? So kind of the bare minimum of yeah. your permit. And then your builder, someone like you, is going to have to figure out a lot of details. So that's as an architect, we don't like to do that. Uh, we'd rather give the builder a proper set of drawings with enough detail to actually understand the project and how it works. So, but that's also, a, it's fee driven. So provide more detail, obviously greater fee. More time. Yeah. And then is your architect going to be involved during construction? Mm-hmm. If they are more, more than likely that's on an hourly basis, there's going to be not a minimum, but I would say you would budget so much a month. Where are those funds going to come from? Is it going to come from the loan or is it going to come from out of pocket? And the interior designer, <laughs> depending on you know right. how their their fees are structured, whether they're purchasing items and selling them to you, or they're just billing you for an hourly basis, there's a lot of other. I mean, it's a whole other podcast just on that. I think. Yeah, I guess to wrap this up, can you really effectively answer the question, "What does it cost to build a custom home?" <laughs> I think the answer is yes. Uh, you can. You can. Uh, and it, uh, the answer is going to be that there's a lot of variables that go into it. 
but there is a starting point. And I think for a custom home, I know we didn't really talk, uh, touch too much on it, but I would say in the Houston market, you would probably start at about $275 a square foot and go up from there, yeah. in my opinion. Now, if you're building in the floodplain, maybe you're looking at 300 and up. So it's a very, but a lot of that, again, back to the analogy of what goes into the basket in the in the shopping cart. What's in the bag of groceries? We know it's salmon, but is that salmon now organic and <laughs> coming from some other stores and, you know. So Wild caught Alaskan salmon yeah. or farm raised Norwegian, yeah, uh, whatever. Yeah, or is it farm raising, you know, somewhere in a lake in Texas. Uh, so, <laughs> a lot of those components drive the cost, unfortunately. Yeah. So, the key is for the consumer to understand, you know, kind of what's included in that price per square foot that they're right. getting from builders. And then more importantly, just keeping in mind that that is a rough initial guide number. Um, I mean, we've actually had people come back to us after, after design, and, and I, I hate that this happens, but they come back to us and they're like, you said we could build for $300 a square foot. Now this is $350 a square foot. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, you added in the $15,000 built-in pizza oven in your kitchen and exactly. you know, <laughs> I mean, what do you expect? Well, yeah. And I think, again, those are great. So those are things that I tell my clients, like they, they affect costs, but they're, they don't affect the build of the home. And by that, I mean structural components. We always like to tell our clients, let's build the best thermal envelope for you that we can, that's feasible, that you want to afford, because I can't come back and fix walls and windows and roofing and things. I can come back and maybe in 10 years and maybe remodel a bathroom, upgrade a bathroom because you have little ones and, you know, you want to do something nicer a little bit later. We can do that. But the kind of the the jewelry, the house jewelry, that's usually the stuff that I can, that I'll say can be replaced. But the components that make up a home, again, thermal envelope, walls, foundation, roofing, those are the things that we can't come back and redo. And so we rather build those as, as to the best that we want, that the client wants to. And we educate them along the way to make sure they can make a great decision about them. Yeah. Things like appliances and light fixtures are easy to replace. Yeah. Just pop them out, pop them back in. <laughs> I mean, it, I'd rather much do that and say, hey, uh, hey, Franco, now we want to change out that, that set of windows and put in this magnificent sliding glass door or whatnot. It's like, well, that would have been a lot easier to do that. Yeah. You know, three years ago when we were here, we could now we have to re-engineer a beam rip things out and, and then are you living in the house? Because if you are, it's, you know, that's adds a whole nother layer of complexity to that. Yeah. I think people have to be careful also not to, to kind of trick themselves into, into believing something that's not realistic. So for example, if three builders are giving you prices of, Hey, we start at 275, 300, 325 a square foot. Right. And then a fourth guy comes along and says, no, I can build that for you for $200 a square foot. People want to believe that. They're like, man, I, I know there's somebody out there that can build it for what I want to spend. I, I, I can feel it. I know it's true. Yeah. Right. And so they trick themselves into believing that. And then they get what they, well, you know what? <laughs> My wife and I recently, we, we purchased a new vehicle for her. So we, we did our research and yeah, you can find it less expensive, but then you go look at what's available for, at that price point. It's not really what you're looking for um, in terms of, uh, there's a basic package to it. But it depends on the amenities you want inside of it. Um, and so then that costs, unfortunately, costs money. So then you have to be realistic about what am I getting for that price? And a lot of times I tell people, go and tour these houses or go look at some of these projects on the construction and see uh, what, what the builder's providing. Because if he has a clean job site, more than likely, he's someone who's going to take uh, safety in, 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 into account. But also that tells you his process and how he builds. Because it's it's like a... 
you take more pride in the work that you're doing. If you go, I've seen a, a lot of houses where I drive by and there's stuff, I mean, there's junk everywhere. And I can, I just think to myself, if that's the outside of the house, what is going on in the inside of that, that structure that I can't see? And is that reflective of the quality that's going into the home? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to talk bad about, you know, dirty job sites because they all get like that from time to time. But the point is, there's a lot that goes into it other than just, that's what, that price per square foot equates, it's kind of a loaded question. There's so much that goes into it. But there's no magic formula to get, to get the same thing for cheaper. You know, you can't, you can't uh, expect to buy a filet mignon for the price of a Big Mac. No, of course, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well. Maybe, but where did the filet mignon come from? How long has it been sitting out, right? <laughs> uh, I think part of it is also, it's, uh, it comes down to, you know, it's, it's either going to be size, so quality or scope. And by, by quality, I mean to what level are we building? And by scope, I mean how big. So if I have a client that says, I've got $2 million to build a 4,000 square foot house, then I'm like, okay, that's a great quality. You know, there's a great quality for the amount of scope. But if I have to then double that house or take that two million, they say I have a million for four for a four thousand square. Foot. Now we cut the quality in half, and that goes into everything that is me as an architect how I design. I'm not going to do these large, expansive openings with a lot of glass and multi-slide doors. We might do something a little bit simpler. We may not have big, broad overhangs with the uh, wood soffits underneath it that are stained out of Epe wood. We might something that maybe it's pine. It's going to get painted. Uh, there's a lot of that we may not do stucco. We might be in, going to another product like a hardy panel or, you know, so, and we may not do flat roofs. We may have to go to a pitch roof with a shingle and, or something else because, you know, at that price point, you know, we can do so much more, but it, it, it just comes down to, uh, scope and quality. Yep. Well, I think that's about all we, all we have for today. And yeah. I really appreciate you coming today and being with me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, before we close, go ahead and tell everybody how they can contact you, your uh, website, your yeah. social media, all that kind of stuff. So uh, you can find us on the web, uh, Alberon Architecture and Construction. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and on Instagram. And, uh, you know, you Google us, you'll see our homepage there and it gives you all the information you need and, uh, look forward to, you know, hopefully hearing from some of these folks and also working with you in the, in the future. And thanks again for letting me be on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you. We'll be sure to link all your information on, on our show notes and on the YouTube notes so people can find you. And, uh, if you're in Houston and you want to build, definitely put Franco and his team on your list to interview and see if they're a good fit for your project. And thank you guys for joining us again today on this episode of the Your Project Shepherd podcast, uh, the, the start of our second season. Uh, we hope that you get some valuable information to help you make the right decisions in your journey to build, remodel, or buy a home. If you have any questions about this topic or anything really, you can email them to me at podcast at yourprojectshepherd.com, and we'll discuss those at the end of each season. I hope you'll join us again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>